the season of Advent. It's the time that we remember God's people of old waiting for the Savior to come. And it's a celebration because the arrival of Jesus is very good news. It's a source of great comfort for the people of God. It's a source of comfort because Jesus comes. His name is given Jesus because he will save his people from their sins today. And it's a source of great comfort because when Jesus returns, he will also rescue and deliver his people from all of the enemies uh, that stand against God. And last week, Brooks Kane, one of our missionaries in Japan, reminded us that as we wait, we also have the great joy and privilege and challenging task of going out into the world and sharing this same good news about Jesus with our friends and with our neighbors and with those who live around us. And so with all those things in mind, we're going to see another word of comfort from God this morning. Because as you all have probably experienced many times, waiting for Jesus can be very difficult. It can be very challenging. And when we particularly face the opposition of the enemies of God, when we encounter the spiritual forces of darkness that manifest themselves in all sorts of different ways, we can lose sight of God's promise that he's with us and that he will care for his people, and that he will deliver them. And so I pray that the Spirit will use Scripture this morning to restore clear vision to us, to remind us and convince us of the hope that we have as we wait and walk in obedience to Jesus together. And so our passage will be the book of Obadiah, so I invite you to turn there now in your Bibles. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you, you can find that on page 772. Friends, hear now the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. 
For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you love and care for your people. And we thank you that you promise uh, to always deliver us from any danger or threat that we may face. And so, Father, we ask this morning that you, by your spirit, would open our eyes to see clearly the promises and the hope that you give to us. And we pray that as we see these things clearly, you would also give us strength to walk in obedience to you, to live our lives faithfully before you, knowing that you are faithful to us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I went to see a movie called Dunkirk. Dunkirk tells a true story about a seemingly hopeless situation. At the beginning of World War II, in the year 1940, Allied forces were trapped on a beach in Dunkirk in northern France. And as the Nazi regime closed in, many people wondered if these forces would be completely annihilated. And whether after the Allied forces were destroyed, the Nazis would then sweep through the rest of Europe and end life as they knew it. To make matters worse, the British Navy was under attack by sea. And so the British government called on their citizens, anyone who owned a small or private vessel, to board their boats and to cross the English Channel in a last-ditch effort to save as many of these allied forces as possible. There was one man who answered this call, and as he boarded his vessel and was steaming across the channel towards France, he and the men who were with him looked out into the water, and they saw that a soldier was stranded there. So they pulled up alongside of him, and they pulled him into their vessel. And after they had brought him on board, as they observed his speech and his mannerisms, it was very clear that he was extremely distressed. He had just escaped from the beach and had been through a seemingly hopeless situation. As they continued to go towards France to try and save more soldiers and sailors, this one soldier looked around and then he looked at at the man driving the vessel and he said, where are we going? The civilian looked at him and he said, Dunkirk. And the man said, what? We can't go to Dunkirk. I just escaped from there. If we go there, we will die. You need to turn this boat around. The civilian very, very calmly replied to him and said, we could be of some help there in Dunkirk. And the soldier looked at him and said, you don't have any weapons. There is nothing you could do to help these people. If we go there, we will not survive. You need to turn around and take us back to England. 
Well, after a few more moments, the men were able to calm this, this soldier, and they led him down below decks where he could get some rest. And then one of the teenagers looked at the, the older civilian who was in charge and asked, is this soldier a coward? And the civilian said, he's, he's shell-shocked. He's not himself. See, this, this soldier, he had been through a seemingly hopeless situation, and his his vision had become incredibly blurred. He did not see that the mission to try and save the allies would do any good. And friends, this is something that we continue to experience and that has always been true for the people of God, that in seemingly hopeless situations, our vision can become very blurry. This was the case for the Israelites who first heard Obadiah's message that we read together this morning. You see, before this prophecy was given, God had brought judgment on his people. They had not been faithful to him. They had sinned against him greatly and against their neighbors. And so 600 years before Jesus was born, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to invade the people of Judah and to take them into exile. And in those days, God's people had some neighbors. They were the people of Edom, who were descendants of Esau. This is why... um, And this is why Obadiah uses these names interchangeably. When he speaks about Esau, when he speaks about Edom, he's talking about the same people. And you may have heard the story of Jacob and and Esau in the Bible, the story of the same Esau who threatened to murder his brother Jacob, as it's recorded in Genesis. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, continued to live in hostility to the descendants of Jacob, to the descendants of Israel. To God's people. And the situation when the Babylonians attacked in 586 BC was no different. In verse 12 through 14, if you look there, we see how the people of Edom took advantage of the situation as God's people were being carried into exile. In verse 12, we learn that they had gloated over the Israelites as they were being carried off. In verse 13, it says that they looted his wealth, they looted their possessions when they were taken from their homes. And then in 14, it even says that they stood at the crossroads, that they went out and they intercepted some of the Israelites who were trying to escape. And they captured them and they turned them over to the Babylonian enemy. The people of God were in a hopeless situation, or at least it seemed that way. And it would have been very easy for them to also have blurred vision and to wonder whether or not God would keep his promises to one day rescue and restore his people. And so God spoke to his people through the prophet Obadiah to comfort them and to assure them that his judgment and their enemies would not last forever, that he would keep his promises. And we need this comfort as well because over 2,000 years after this was written, God's people continue to face many enemies. We hear news of government and armed forces attacking and imprisoning, and sometimes even even murdering our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world because they profess the name of Jesus. In our own country, many of the intellectual elite will make fun of Christians as backwards bigots and as people who are intellectually bankrupt because we believe the Bible. And in our office spaces, in the hallways at our schools, 
on social media, we, we can experience similar mockery from coworkers or for classmates and from others because we seek to honor God by keeping our actions and our words and our bodies pure before him. And we're mocked for this. And it can feel very lonely. Like you're trapped on an island in a raging sea with no end of the tempest in sight. When we face seemingly hopeless situations, our vision can become blurry. And we can doubt if God will keep his promises to rescue his people and to effectively use us to share the good news of the gospel. But friends, God, he sees these situations. He knows that we get blurry vision. And in his love and in his care, he has spoken to his people. And because God has spoken to us, we can have clear vision. And the first thing we see clearly is that there will be an end for God's enemies. And this end is made very clear. Look in verse 1 at the very end. It says, the Lord, this is the word of the Lord concerning Edom. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. He's saying the nations will rise against Edom to bring them down. But friends, this message is not only about Edom in 600 BC. Look in verse 15. It says, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. If you go down to verse 16, it says it again. So all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. What God is saying is that he isn't simply going to bring an end to his enemies in Edom. What he's saying is he is going to bring an end to his enemies everywhere. In other words, whatever this passage says about Edom can also be applied to the end of God's enemies, whether it was in the past or in the present or into the future. And the end for all of God's enemies is inevitable because no one no one can stand against the Lord. Look in verse 3. He says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. God is, the people of Edom lived in the mountains. This was the geographic setting and so their homes were naturally well defended. And, in, and conducting a military offensive against them would have been very, very difficult to do. And so they grew proud. And the people of Edom believed that they were untouchable. But Obadiah reminds us that no matter how invincible an enemy might appear or believe themselves to be, they cannot stand against the Lord. And when God brings these enemies down, their end will be utterly complete. Look in verse 5. He says, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. God is saying that when a thief comes and takes your possessions, or, or when a harvester finishes picking the grapes out in a field, in a vineyard, there might be something of value left behind. But when God finishes with his enemies, they will be completely ruined. There will be nothing left behind. And the following verses add to this picture. Look in verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap 
beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Do you see what's just happened? Every aspect of life has been brought to the ground. Their economy in verse 6, their allies in verse 7, their leadership in verse 8, their military might in verse 9, all of it has been obliterated. As one scholar summarized it this way, the very structures of society will topple. And when this happens, it will be as if these enemies had never existed. Look in verse 18. He says, there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. And if you go back to verse 16, it says it again. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. I know that talking about the wrath and the judgment of God can be a very difficult thing. And some of you may even be thinking right now, this, this imagery of judgment and of wrath is one of the reasons why I have a hard time understanding or even believing in the God of the Bible. And so it's very important for us to understand why God is bringing this judgment to his enemies. Look in verse 10. He says, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. As we saw earlier in, in verses 10 or 11 through 14, they describe what Edom had done to God's people. They had mocked them. They had looted. They perpetrated horrific violence against Jacob, the people of God. And because God loves and he cares for his people, he was going to ensure that justice would be served against those who had wronged them. And this is what I want us to remember is that, friends, whenever God judges, it is always just. In every place where you read about God's judgment in Scripture, every place, if you look carefully, you will see God entering into situ situations where things have gone terribly wrong, where great injustices are being committed, and he takes action to make things right. And this understanding of justice it's something that I think most of us today can appreciate. 2020 marks the beginning of a new decade. And as we reflect on the last five to seven decades in world history, we will see people all over the world crying out for relief against injustice. Whether it was the civil rights movement against the wickedness of white supremacy here in our own country, or calling out for the end of apartheid in South Africa, or the people who were weeping for atrocities that were committed in Cambodia under the Pol Pot regime. Wherever you look, people around the world understand and long for justice and for the end of enemies that commit wickedness against others. And so when we see God standing against wrongdoing to make things right, we don't see a God who is a fiend, as some people would have us believe. No, we see God acting as a loving and a faithful father because that is what he is our vision is often blurry but his vision is crystal clear he sees all of the wrong things that are going on in the world and he's doing something about it and this is what we see in verse 15 
Look there with me. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. When our King, Christ Jesus, returns in the day of the Lord, he will end all wrongs and he will put everything right. Now, I know this doesn't address every question or doubt that people have in this area. And I know that, that some of you have many other legitimate questions in your minds. And I would love to sit with you over coffee or lunch and continue to explore those questions together. But for now, I hope that if you haven't already, you might begin to see God as a loving Father who expresses His love through just judgment. And I also want us to see that Scripture shows us another aspect of God's love, and it is the loving mercy that God shows to His enemies. And we see this kind of incredible love from God all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, Israel had other infamous enemies. And two of the most notorious were the nations of Egypt and Assyria. You see, Egypt had enslaved and tortured the people of God. Assyria had invaded and committed horrible violence against his people. But listen how, to how God speaks about both of these nations and the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 19, he says this, In that day, Israel will be third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, listen, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. What we see is that our God is not only a God of justice, but also a God of mercy. He will bring his enemies to an end. And if anyone among those enemy ranks repents and seeks the mercy of God, they will receive forgiveness. And friends, in the New Testament, we continue to see God's love and mercy for his enemies. The Apostle Paul wrote more books in the New Testament than any other author. But before he became Paul, his name was Saul. And among Christians, Saul would have been public enemy number one. In Acts chapter 9, we learn that Paul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And through Ananias, who was, he was a man who was the first Christian to meet Paul after he converted to Christianity. The first man to meet him said, that he had heard about Saul, and many other Christians had heard about him too. And he was afraid because they knew how much evil he had done to God's people. And in Acts 22, Paul himself admits that he persecuted the church to the death, having many Christians thrown into prison. Saul was a violent enemy of the people of God, but Saul was not brought to the end of Edom. Rather, in 1 Timothy 1, we hear him say this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if God can save an enemy like me, an enemy like Saul, then no one is beyond hope. And for the rest of his life, Paul proclaimed God's good news of mercy 
for his enemies. For, and God continues to protect and preserve his people, us, today, so that like Paul, we too might proclaim his loving mercy for those who turn to him through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel that we proclaim, that whenever God calls one of his enemies to himself, he does not bring wrath down on these former enemies. Why? Because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live behind enemy lines. And as Jesus died for his enemies on the cross, God brought the judgment for their sins down on his own son, Jesus. And if anyone believes in Jesus as their Savior, who can forgive their sins and give them new life, then no matter what kind of enemy they have been, whether a mocker or a murderer, like Egypt and like Assyria and like Paul, they will find mercy through Jesus Christ. They will not be brought to wrath. They will be brought into God's family. And he will look at them and say, my beloved child, Welcome home. Come now and share in the joy of my promises for my people because you are one of us now. And friends, God has made incredible promises for his people. My grandmother um, grew up on a farm in Virginia only a few hours from here in Roanoke. And she would tell stories to her children and, and to her grandchildren about her wonderful memories of that childhood life and experience. And my father, a few years ago, was reflecting on his memories of these stories. And I was, I was talking with him about it on the phone. He said, your grandmother loved her childhood. She always said that it was idyllic. See, she lived on a beautiful farm, and she was surrounded by family who loved and cared for her deeply. And she would always speak with particular fondness of her father. See, he adored my grandmother and her sister, and he loved them, and he cared for them, and he protected them. And I know that, that many of us come from very different backgrounds with very different stories. But I bet that most of us share a similar longing for something like that. We share a longing for a home that's safe, for a father who's present with us and who, who cares for us. My grandmother loved her childhood because these, these longings that we all share that are so fundamental to what it means to be human were met in a profound way. The longings for a safe home and for a father. And what we see is that God, our heavenly father, promises to fulfill all of these longings in beautiful ways. He promises to preserve his people, to protect us. Look in verse 17. In Mount Zion, there shall be those who will escape. He's saying no matter how bad things might look, God's people can have confidence that ultimately, whether in this life or the next, they will not be overcome but they shall be delivered. And God promises to not only preserve his people, but to bring them into his place. He promises to give us a good home. You see, friends, from the very beginning, God has been giving good places for his people to live. In the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 1, we learn about a paradise that he created for Adam and for Eve. 
when the Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt, he said that he was going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And friends, today we see that God will continue to provide a place for his people. Look in verse 17 again. He says, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And then in verse 19 through 20, he goes on and he lists the land that God has promised to give to his people. Now remember, this happened in 500, around 586 B.C. Well, 50 years later, God made good on his word. 50 years after the Babylonian exile, they were brought back to their land. He kept his promise. And you can read about this in the books of Ezra and of Nehemiah. And he was giving them a small taste of what this fulfillment for his promise would look like. And his, his promise of a home for us will ultimately be fulfilled for all his people in the paradise of the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns. But he doesn't end there. God also promises to bring his people into his presence. Look in verse 17 one more time. It says, Mount Zion shall be holy. It will be holy because the Lord will be there. And in verse 21, the very last sentence we read in this passage, it says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And friends, this is good news because in Revelation 21, we learn that God will rule the kingdom, but he will not rule it from a distance. No, he will make his home among his people and he will rule in our very presence. He is a father who will always be present to adore and protect and shower blessings on his children for all eternity rescue from our enemies, a good home, a present and loving and protecting father, the fulfillment of some of our deepest longings, how can we know that these things will come true? We'll look in verse one. He says, thus says the Lord God. And if you read throughout this passage, you will hear it over and over again. Thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord declares. Friends, this is when the Lord says something, we can count on what he's saying. This is the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the same God who in Exodus chapter 6 promised his people that he would rescue them out of slavery. And in Exodus 12, he rescues them out of slavery. Our God is powerful. He has the power to keep his word, and he has always shown himself faithful to keep his word. So how will this shape the way that we live our lives when we go out of here this morning? Well, friends, I hope it will encourage us to continue to live our lives for the Lord. Because when we get blurry vision, it can be very easy for us to begin to believe the same lies that Edom believed in verse 3. We can begin to think that God's enemies are invincible. And when this happens, it can lead us to think about abandoning, abandoning our mission to share the good news of Jesus with the world. And sometimes it can even lead us to consider not only abandoning our mission, but going over and joining their side, joining the enemies of God, because it can look like that's where true life is to be found. But I pray that the Holy Spirit through this word will give us clear vision to see what's actually true, that these enemies will come to an end, and that we will be comforted and strengthened with the hope and assurance that true blessing is found only and the promises for God's people and is obtained through Jesus alone. And that knowing this, we would joyfully live our lives before him out of his strength and out of his grace. 
And for others, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you, you've been looking in all sorts of places to try and fulfill those longings that you have in your heart. And so my hope is that you would see that true fulfillment of all those deepest longings is found in Jesus, the only one who can bring us this kind of fulfillment. And that seeing and believing that, you would bow your knee in obedience to him as he embraces you with his love and as he leads you into the family of God and to the home that God has waiting for all of his people where he will love and care and protect and shower us with his blessings for all eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you promise to protect us and that you speak to help us to see clearly. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to help us to believe these words and that with that belief, we would go forth and fearlessly proclaim your mercy for all those who turn to you through Jesus Christ and help us to walk with joy and obedience all of your days because you have delighted in us and you have loved us and cared for us and always kept your promises. It's in Jesus' name that I make this prayer. Amen. I invite the ushers to come forward this m now to collect this morning's tithes and offerings.